Welcome back. Hello. To Mysteries. Murders. Monsters. And your moms. We're the moms. Hello. It sounded really squeaky. Hello, we're your moms. It sounds like what your kid sounds like when they've like had it and they're tired and they're like, mom. So, so Solomon does this thing and it's usually when he's in his bedroom and he doesn't want to get up. And it's hilarious. And I'm one of these times I'm just going to wait and see how long he goes for. And it'll either be mama, dad, dad, but this is what he does. Mama, 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 mama. Like every 10 seconds, he'll say our names. And this will, <coughs> this will go on and on and on and on. For at least, like, until, until one of us shows up. So, it's like the Family Guy episode. <laughs> I don't know what that... <laughs> so, there's, like, Family Guy from, like, old Family Guy from a million years ago, where Stewie sits, like, next to his sleeping mother and goes, <laughs> Mommy, Mommy, Mom, 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 Mommy, Mommy, yeah, Mommy. Yeah, like, basically. Which is, yeah. Yeah, or it'll be Dada, Dada, Dada. <laughs> and then, so they got a TV in their room. And at night, uh, they're allowed to watch, you know, one thing. Like, usually we're like, pick a PBS show. That's what you get. And then we set a timer on the TV, which is amazing. That is amazing. For 30 minutes. But once it gets to, like, that last minute, it counts down. And it'll shut off on its own. And I don't know that he's aware of that. But he'll be like, Mama! Mommy! 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 Like, just continuously until I show up and he's like it's done (laughs) I don't need to know but thanks thanks buddy that's nice it is it's funny but Jared and I just like look at each other like when he starts (laughs) doing it and we're like should we should we set a timer and see how long we can make this go for like so anyway I would be intrigued yeah because kids are crazy like stuff like that parenting stories and then I was watching uh uh, old videos that I was tagged in and they're mainly from my husband and there's one of Atticus and I think it was one it was Paul Rudd and he was on the Jimmy Fallon show and they redid that uh, you like what's, how's the song go you like to me you look like you're lots of fun open up your open arms oh, yeah, watch yeah. out here you spin me right around yeah, that's the yeah, song there yeah. we go um, they remade that video verbatim and it's fucking hilarious if you've never seen it you need to find it anyway Atticus loves it and when he was a baby we were playing it and he just like stopped what he was doing and he just like wobbled over the TV and did that squat thing that babies yeah. do when they dance and then uh, when he was three and he's currently three we put it on again and he just had the biggest grin on his face like he was so happy it's funny the things that they pick up on and then stick with <laughs> so so one of zoe's first favorite songs ever mm-hmm. like she has a bunch now but this is like the first one mm-hmm. is busted by johnny cash because bees used to sing it to her because Aww. it's like really short and he knows all the words basically yeah. He's like, for no good reason. Yeah. The song's about being broke and going to your brother to get a loan. Because, you, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, because like you're kids, busted. It's like the kids need shoes, you know? Like, it's, like, really depressing. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> horribleness. And she, it's like, to this day, like, she loves that song. And, like, you just be somewhere and she's like, yeah. Like, it'll come on and we'll have friends over and you guys will be there. And she's just like, yeah, busted. Like, why does my kid... Well, because I think she's got kind of the... She has an eclectic... 
Oh, she does. Food taste and music taste. Yeah. Like, she, I swear, is a very old woman in a very tiny body. I've been making her a soundtrack, so every time we hear a song, so she can play it upstairs in her room. Oh, yeah. So every time we hear a song, that she, like, she'll be like, can I have that on my soundtrack? Oh. And mostly we're like, I'm fine with her listening to whatever with us. Like, right. I, we're not, I don't, I don't do censorship, really. I just, yeah. they don't. But there's some songs that we consider, I'm like, I don't know if I want that on your soundtrack because of, like, the idea that she's starting to play with other kids now and, like, they might play that upstairs to get, like, uh, you know, yeah. so it was, like, Blister in the Sun. Uh, and I was kind of like, I, I, uh, let's keep that one on Mommy and Daddy's, you know? Like, let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's keep that one. And I have to, so I'll save this for next week, but we have to talk about it because I need to maybe bring it. Okay. So there's a song, it's new, and they play it on this radio station we listen to called XBN. Okay. And it's about, like, the chorus is something about the big D. <laughs> which, you know where our minds go, right? Yeah, yeah. But, like, we're not really sure what the fuck the big she's D. talking about. But Zoe is infatuated <laughs> with this song and sings it all the time. And oh, I'm just no. like, oh, God. And, like, these of I just sit there and laugh because we just don't know what to, to yeah. think. And, like, I don't I, I don't know enough about the song. And I really need to do some research. So I'll do some research for you for next She's week. She's wandering around out. the halls of second grade taught, singing about Big D. The Big, the big D. <laughs> Getting the Big D. That is, like, oh, seriously no. the chorus to this song. It's and funny. I, like I said, no censorship, but also, like, I'm not ready to have that conversation. Solomon keeps asking, and he asked his dad point blank last night how are babies made and i'm like solomon we've had so i'm not I, parents can do whatever the hell they want honestly i don't care i'm not here to judge but i'm not gonna lie to my kids about certain things but i also know that certain things are not appropriate because he's only six so i've said to him multiple times i'm like listen i'm not gonna lie to you about how babies are made but you were not at an age yeah. where it's okay for me to discuss it with you. And yeah. he's like, so maybe like when I'm eight, I was like, uh, maybe 10. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> we talk about things like if there's something that comes up and there's a question, that's what we do. Where it's like, you know, we're not, we're not ready to talk about this yet. Yeah. We'll discuss it when you're older. Right. And I mean, I think that's a perfectly appropriate response because I think at this point, I think he would just be confused. Yeah. Like, it's not that there's anything wrong with understanding it. It's just, I don't think no. he would. So we had, um, so this is the last one that we should get started. Okay. <laughs> so we had, uh, we've been watching Young Sheldon with Zoe. Oh. It's really cute. Yeah. Um, you know, sitcom -y thing. You know, back in the day, we watched The Big Bang Theory. So like, yeah. and she thinks it's great. We watch it and it's entertaining for all of us. We don't have to be tortured by whatever. Right. So there was an episode where his sister got her period. Oh. And Zoe was like, I want to know what's happening. So we had, we like stopped the show and had the talk about it, the whole thing. Yeah. And it was, she's like, afterwards, I'm like, any questions? Not now, but I'm sure I will later. <laughs> I <laughs> love like, her so much. <laughs> she's just like, not right now. I'm sure I'm, I might have some later. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, oh God. What an adult thing to say. But though. I was like, thank you. Um, I was like, you know, I mean, we needed to talk about it. It wasn't yeah. like I've been putting it off or anything. It just it hasn't know, come up really. Yeah. Just like whatever. So, so yeah, we had that talk. I mean, we're not saying we won't reinforce it again when we get closer to the time. Well, yeah. But, Kids. Uh, well, awesome. if you don't want to show, it's always dramatic. 
super dramatic. The yeah. girl was on, the way, on her way to a baseball game where she was pitching, like, you know, um, and she was with her dad and not her mom, and it's always, like, yeah. something like that. Something, so. <laughs> okay, All well, right. I think I'm first. You are first. I titled this story Haunted Homicide because it's going to... Uh, it's, it, I'm combining two, I'm combining true crime and paranormal. Which makes me so together. Happy. Yeah. I love it. So, okay. For starters, what makes a haunting? And I think that there are like multiple things. So, usually it's something to do with tragedy, sudden deaths, multiple death, curses, and basically just the continuation of the cycle of life and death on this plane as we know it. So, it's not surprising that when uh, murder and unnecessary death are combined, a place becomes the scene of a haunting. And today we're going to talk about that. A house, multiple murders, and those left behind to haunt it. So the first part is the true crime because that's what comes first. And in uh, the early 1990s in the county of Marion in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, police were investigating a succession of disappearances. And by when I say police, I mean they were kind of looking into them these disappearances were targeting specifically gay men, all of them being of similar age, height, and weight. The police really didn't have anything to go on, and eventually they kind of just gave up looking. And the whole town was not supportive of the gay community. They just, they, they chalked it up to being um, horrible, just quote-unquote, a gay thing. Where was this again? What Indiana. Was Indiana, okay, thank you. Yeah. But there was one private detective, his name was Virgil Vandegrill, who was a retired Marion County Sheriff and he decided to run his own private investigation. Several of the families of missing men had contacted him asking for help. Alan Broussard, who was 28, his mother said he was last seen leaving a gay bar in the downtown Indianapolis area and had been missing since June 1994. The mother of Roger Goodlett, 32, noted he was missing and the circumstances were much the same as Allen's and he went missing in July of 1994. What he did find was that there were dozens of men who were missing and he took his findings to the police and again they shrugged it off. There was nothing substantial until a man named Tony. Tony is his alias. We don't know his actual real name. So Tony's story goes like this. He had been a friend of Roger Goodlett, who is noted as being missing, and he was at a gay bar one night when he noticed a man whom he had recognized from having frequented the bar, and he identified himself as Brian Smart. The two chatted throughout the night until Brian invited Tony back to his quote-unquote boss's house. The car Brian drove had Ohio plates, and they drove north. This is all from Tony. He was trying to remember where right. they were going because it was uh, in an unfamiliar area to him, and it was also nighttime. So basically, he already knew he probably shouldn't be doing this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. He, was being, he was feeling a little off about his decision, but it sounds like. Yeah. Brian then led Tony to the pool house at his quote-unquote boss's house, and the first multiple red flags I guess but the first was that when they entered the pool house it was an indoor pool in an enclosed space and this pool was surrounded by mannequins which oh. is pretty odd right oh, yeah, I'm leaving. yeah like I'm out and then from here I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna fucking walk south that's all 
Uh, from here, things got a bit um, sexual. So if you've got youngins around, fast forward a little bit. Okay. But it was all about erotic asphyxiation. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. Uh, Brian wanted to take turns. So, which they did, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then when it was Brian's turn to choke Tony, he didn't actually stop. He kept going. And his clear agenda was that he was going to kill Tony. Uh, so Tony played dead. He played possum. And he... Smart. Yeah, it was very smart. And then when Brian let go, he opened his eyes and it caught Brian off guard. Tony was able to describe the house he went to, but he was unsure exactly of where it was. He knew that it was a large Tudor-style home and had a sign in front that said farm. Van de Grill then contacted the police, but instead of the department itself, he contacted Mary Wilson directly, who was a missing persons detective. They attempted to identify the house, but they never could. So they went back to, they knew it was a big house and they mm -hmm. went to an area where lots of rich people lived and they couldn't really identify it. I'm not exactly sure how Tony, going back to this, how he got away. I believe Brian drove him back. Oh, like. After he attempted to kill him and it didn't succeed, he just drove him back. I'm not exactly sure that part uh, of the story gets cut off. Maybe it's a, maybe it's basically like he went, oh no no, it was fine. Like I knew you were fine, you know, and play, tried to play it off, <laughs> even though Tony knew different. But like, right, yeah, you know, like it, it sounds like this guy's pretty confident. So yeah, so a year goes by. It's August 1995. Tony was at another gay bar, and then guess who walks in? Of course. Brian Smart. Recognizing him, he ran out, he found the car, and he took down the license plate number and gave it to the detective. Mary ran the plates, but she did not find a Brian Smart. Instead, she found Herb Baumeister as the owner of the car. In November of 1995, detectives showed up at Baumeister's property asking to search, and he refused. So I'm going to pause for a second, and I'm going to give you a little background on Herbert Baumeister. He was born April 7th, 1947. He showed the typical signs of mental illness in his teenage years, and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder, but was never treated for it, mainly because at the time the only treatment was electroconvulsive therapy and his parents refused to do that to him i totally understand yeah yeah he graduated high school he had several failed attempts at indiana university but while he was there he met juliana Sater. i think her name they just call her julie again another fucking julian these stories <laughs> Uh, who she was a high school teacher and a part-time student and the two soon married they would eventually have three children together herb had a hard time keeping a job and he would often be fired the one job he was fired uh, from he was fired for urinating on a letter to the governor okay <laughs> like so he became a stay-at-home dad so weirdly specific it really is yeah um his wife went back to school as a teacher and i'm also going to note that when all of this eventually went down she talked about um, her husband and they she could count how many times they had sex in their entire marriage and it was only six times oh yeah just enough to procreate so uh what eventually happened is that him and his wife started a business called save a lot 
and became successful enough to open a second location. And this was a pretty lucrative business. This is how they were able to afford a giant mansion with tons of property around it. Eventually, his marriage started to become volatile, and Julie and her kids would spend summers with his mother, and he would stay home. <laughs> he said he was just going to focus on the farm. He stopped showing up for work, and the large Tudor, so the large Tudor mansion style that they lived in came with an in-ground enclosed pool, in case you didn't get that. So this all fits the description right, of right. the place that Tony said that he was. The same year that Herb and his family moved to the farm is when young gay men started disappearing from downtown Indianapolis. So we're going to back up even a little bit further because they're trying to pull two cases into one. Around the time from 1989 to 1991, there was a series of killings called the I-70 murders. And maybe we can go back and do a whole nother because I'm, I'm just paraphrasing and summarizing it nope, just totally for cool. this one story. Well, you know. There's so many. I know. There's like, just so take many. A, take a famous route on, on a map <laughs> or route, whatever yeah. you prefer to say. Whatever I your regionalism. A bunch of murders connected to it. Twelve gay men were killed in Indiana and Ohio, and their bodies were left near Interstate 70. These young men were taken from gay bars and similar establishments within a four-block radius of Indianapolis. And I'm just going to tell you their names because I always feel that it's important. But Michael Petrie, who was 15... Maurice Taylor, who was 20, Devoid Lee Baker, who was 14. Some of these kids were super, super, super yeah. young. Like they were not, they, they weren't young men, they were kids. They were, yeah, it was more than just like, go yeah. on. Yeah, Michael Andrew Riley, 22. Eric Allen Rodiger, Ro, 17. Michael Allen Glenn, 29. Uh, John Paul Talbot, and I don't have his age. Stephen Elliott, 26. Clay Russell Boatman, who was 32, and Thomas Clevenger Jr. was 19, and Otto Gary Becker, who was 42. All of these men and boys were strangled. That was their all of their cause of death. These cases are not officially solved, but police believe that Herb Baumeister was the one who killed them. However, there is no evidence connecting him, and there are some who claim that Herb is just a convenient killer to pin them on, and they don't actually believe that he did it, and the real killer is still at large. So there's a lot of argument going back and forth as to whether he really did. It's a lot. It is. For, and I'm not saying that it couldn't be one person, but it's a lot of victims for one person. Right. Like, because where I understand that the, the ones that he did do started when he moved to that area right. and he was living somewhere else before and then they stopped when he changed locations so i get that right and but. that the way that the men were killed were the same but i don't understand how he because at the time you know he was getting married he he couldn't keep down a job he was having babies like where there's a lot going on right to be able to make sure you got enough time to go out and stalk and Right. Like, there's a, like, yeah. So Show I, up at these bars. I, yeah. a lot of different ways, I, but I see why there's... Right. So, all right, let's go back to our story. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> all right. Herb denied the detective's access to search his property, and around the same time of these disappearances, Herb's 13-year-old son was wandering around the property because it was a big property. It yeah. was the big forested area around their house. I can't remember how many acres, but there's a lot. When he found a skull. Oh, he 
kind of, you know, picked, dug it up, picked it up, took it to his mother, who obviously freaked out, and he showed her where he had found it. And there they found more bones. They actually found an entire human skeleton. When she confronted Herb, he said that it was an old anatomical skeleton that his father used to practice anesthesia. His father was a doctor, by the way. Convenient, right? But they buried it in the yard? Uh, Of a house that he didn't own prior to that? Yeah. Yeah. So due to Herb's erratic and scary behavior, she decided just to take his word for it and, and let it go. Yeah, I get it, though. Right. You've got three kids. He's obviously great, like, going cuckoo. Yeah. So, due to the story from Tony and running the plates that matched the car, Mary tried to get a search warrant. Since both Herb and Julie declined access, and due to the lack of evidence, she was denied by county officials a warrant to search the property. Then, in June of 1996, Julie had a change of heart. Due to Herb's continuous breakdown their failing business she was filing for divorce she told the detectives about the skeleton her son had found two years earlier and she gave them permission to search their home while herb was away nice. he was i think he was at his mom's mary and the hamilton county officers investigated fox hollow and it didn't take long to find what they were looking for Within 50 feet of the house, they found the remains of 11 men. And out of those, eight were identifiable. (coughs) Roger Goodlett, 34. Stephen Hale, 26. Richard Hamilton, 20. Manuel Resendez, 31. Mike Karen, 20. Alan Bruce Bard, 28, who, if you remember, I mentioned him in the beginning. And Jeff Jones, 31, as as well as Roger Goodlett. Those were the two names that I mentioned in the beginning. He killed them both. One report also states that the gravel along the grass had crushed bones in it, that it wasn't just landscaping, there were bones mixed in it. Now that the evidence was in the open and a warrant was put out for his arrest. At the time, Herb was at his mother's and when he got word of what was happening and he ran, he crossed the Canadian border. And on July 3rd, 1996, a group of hikers in the Pinnery Provincial Park, Ontario, stumbled on the body of Herb Baumeister. His cause of death was a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, and beside him was the gun he used to do it, as well as a suicide note, which talked about his failing business and his divorce as reasonings why, but he never once mentioned any of the killings or the bodies that he put on his property. Yeah, because I bet that had nothing to do with his suicide. No, not at all, or the fact that they were coming for him. Yeah, Yeah, right. So eventually, his family sold the farm, and they moved on with their lives. But sometimes death may not be the end for others. Now let's get into the hauntings. So that's that's the and I there. I mean, I'm telling you most of the de- the details. There's not a lot. There's not a lot. No. Like he strangled these men and then buried them. Buried the them. Yeah. And there's a lot of speculation as to why he did it. Some I don't think it was because he. I think he was gay, and he didn't want to admit that. And so he took it out on other people, sadly and unfortunately. Yeah. That's never okay. But he also had issues. He had that, a lot of mental health issues that even though his mom and parents didn't want to treat when he was younger, he it, could have treated in adulthood yeah. when things were different. Especially in, so. like, you know, the 90s. Yeah. And you've got money. I just... Yeah, he could have had a lot of... But I, I remember him a little bit. I remember reading about this. Didn't mm-hmm. he have a weird relationship with his mother? Wasn't there a weird... I don't know. I didn't read, like, all of that. Maybe I'm just, like, making that up, but... 
I think he had a, I don't think his, I don't know, maybe it was his dad, I don't know. Or something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like, that's also part of it. You don't want to admit it, not just for yourself, but, like, for your family. Like, you know, you don't, like, you wanted him to be okay, so he was just going to be okay and not get help. But anyway, Yeah, we can go back into it eventually. No, let's find out about the haunting. (laughs) Okay, so... In May of 2009, Rob Graves, which is a great last name to own a haunted house, that is really good. and his wife purchased Fox Hollow. By the way, I should probably back up. The name of this Tudor-style home, which he lived, was called Fox Hollow Farm. Gotcha. Which is the farm Hard part home. that Tony saw on the sign. They knew the history of the house, but they got a steal. And by a steal, I mean that this house was listed for over a million dollars. I think it was close to two million dollars. When you want to guess how much they got it for? 500,000. Close. 900,000. Around 900,000. Jeez. Yeah, it was a, it was a fucking steal. And this house is very nice and it's huge. Like there is a three-car like stable garage with a whole apartment above it. Anyway, I'm sold on the pool part. I mean, I know. The yeah. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Vicky started seeing things first. Initially, it was little things like the vacuum would would come unplugged on its own and then it grew. One day, she started screaming to her husband that she saw a man in the woods and that he was wearing a red shirt and he was just standing there, but she also noticed that he didn't have any legs. Then she saw him again and he would be running. Sometimes he was running through the woods. So initially, her husband, when he came to her and she was screaming, he thought that there was trespassers on that property. Um, I forget what he called them. I don't remember. But just people who go chasing for like true crime locations because, yeah, like, yeah, serial groupies or something. Like people that are like on the property Mm -hmm. because of the killings. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think that it happened a couple times. Probably. Right. And that they were, he thought that that's who they were. But uh, then she started seeing this particular man several times. and, And they're like, okay, well, this is not one of these groupies. So like I mentioned, there was an apartment um, above an in-law's quarters. Oh, yes. And a man named Joe LeBlanc started to rent out the space. And I also think he was some sort of a caretaker. Like he was helping with the property right. as well. And then he had far more. Are you all right? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm creaky today. I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> You're good. So he started having more intense experiences. His apartment door... He would wake up in the middle of the night and there would be knocking, but he wouldn't answer it. And then every time he didn't answer it, the knocking would intensify until the point where he did get up and open the door, but there would be nobody there. Uh, And then he says that on one occasion, the door was dead bolted. And even with the dead bolt, it would fly open in the middle of the night on its own. Things would move on their own, and he also saw the man in the red shirt. One time, he was chasing somebody out in the woods. Like, he was out walking his dog, and his dog started to get, like, real crazy. And then he saw somebody. He saw a man in a red shirt, and he ran after him. And then the guy disappeared, and where he stopped, he found some human remains. Uh, Excuse me. And then once, while he was with a group of friends swimming in said pool... (laughs) Yeah he could feel hands around his neck. 
and the hands started squeezing his neck and started to pull him under the water, but there was nobody around him. And I don't really know that his friends or anybody was paying attention, but once he, he did eventually break free and he, he got out and he got all of his friends out, like, you know, get the fuck out of the pool, <laughs> but it only happened to him. And then he had, he would have dreams, very vivid dreams of being chased into the woods. Mm. Like he was running for his life. One night, when he answered the insistent knocking, he opened the door and saw that the door knocker was still in its upright position, like somebody was still holding onto it, and then they let it go, and then it dropped. And then another night, he heard a scraping noise, and when he found the source, it was the knives from the butcher block, and they were all in the sink, and there were cuts on the walls. And then Joe, being the, I guess, brave man that he is, decided he needed answers, and he set up a recorder in the apartment and started asking questions. When he listened to the playback, he heard an answer to his question, is there anyone here? And the response was, the married one. Yeah. So since everyone was having some sort of an experience, the family decided to call paranormal paranormal investigators in. First, it was the locals, and they saw shadows. They did catch a few things, and eventually word got out, and bigger bigger investigators called to come. I'm going to back up for just a second. So the local investigators, they had, like, two different psychics come in, and the one said that Joe was the focus of all of these hauntings and that that's why they were happening mostly to him because he was just a single dude. It makes sense. Yeah. And then another one said that it was the wife that was the focus of the haunting. So it went kind of like back and forth. But the one psychic was very adamant that, you know, Joe, you shouldn't live here anymore. Like, you just need to go. Yeah. So one of these big investigators that came to call was, you want to guess? No. Ghost Adventures. So everyone knows that Ghost Adventures does not go home empty-handed. They always find something. Always. First, they went into the pool room. It's believed that most of the men that he killed, he killed within that room. So while they were in there, they see some sort of misty anomaly in the corner of the room, followed by hearing the word help. Using a spirit box, which, by the way, is a great band if you're into... I don't know, the music that I listen to. Spirit Box is a great fucking band. Um, and they have, uh, an, I want their album on vinyl, but it's sold out and I can't get it now. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, okay, sorry. Spirit Box, great band. Google them. Um, so with this, they hear, dun, 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 let me turn my page, <laughs> a voice saying, I'm dead. They ask, who killed you? And it answers, I don't know, followed by a second voice that says, Herb did it. Mm. Which I think is interesting because he didn't go by the name Herb. Like, he used an alias. And maybe, like, when you die, you just become all-knowing or something, so then you know know the name. Like, if you're haunting the place, you might have... Picked it up a name or two. too, if anyone... Like, his wife was having a tough time with everything. Mm -hmm. But it'd be interesting, and I'm sure, you know, maybe they didn't realize it, but I wonder if there was anything happening. Because obviously, like, they found remains. Like, these people were... Like, they didn't find bodies. They found skeletal remains. Yeah. So they've been dead for... A while. Yeah, so I wonder... 
Hmm. But with everything else happening, it might not have really, I don't know. But yeah. there wasn't a single guy there, so. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe they did and they just don't talk about it. Which is why, like, that's what I'm saying with the herb thing. Like, yeah. Probably like, all of that trauma from finding out yeah. that your husband is a, you know, a serial killer. And then he, you know, shoots himself. Yeah. So. And your business is failing, so you've got all sorts of problems. And you're like, if there's a dude running around in the woods with a red shirt, you you're see, probably like, I don't even care. You see an anomaly in the pool hall, and you're like, the fuck no. I'm done. And you just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> so, off in the woods, they're, because, you know, and Ghost Adventures, they have groups that the guys split up, and they all go yeah. off into various places. Um, they hear uh, a voice say, I'm here, after asking if anyone is with them. And the same voice says, in the middle, after being prompted to lead them to his body. Then they stop, and the voice says, found it. And then after that, they, they hear no more voices. That's it. That was the last one. <clears throat> so eventually, Joe did move out of this apartment. And I already mentioned, you know, he was a target for the reason why they were, the hauntings were so active. When he did eventually leave... The hauntings didn't really stop, but most of the aggress, all of the aggressive ones calmed down. So I'm not sure if you can visit Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, I can't, I, I'm sure maybe if you pay, I don't know. And there are two Fox Hollow Farms. There's one in like Georgia, I think. And then there's this one in Indianapolis. So there's two very different farms happening here, but they have the same damn name. There is a movie about Fox, about the, excuse me. There is a movie called the Fox Hollow Farm Hauntings that you can watch. And I'm sure you can drive by the place. Just be careful because I doubt that they want guests and the owner does carry a shotgun. So just there in you case go. you uh, serial groupies out there oh. think you're just going to go rolling up in, think again, you may be the next body they bury. Oh. So that's so that's my I love it. haunted homicide story. Yeah. It's very sad. It is. When it's really sad, too, if you think about, so they think her killed those all those missing men, but like you don't really know, and there's all these. I just I get so like overwhelmed by the amount of unsolved and missing like cases. Yeah, people go missing all the time. So I have to tell you about. <clears throat> we went to the Ithaca to see the comedian oh, right, Tom Segura, right, right, right. which, by the way. He was way better in person than he was Good. on, like, his normal, like, Netflix stand-ups. I laughed a lot. Yay. Um, that makes me happy that it wasn't terrible. So it was great. But we were on State Street, and we were going to a place called the Saigon Kitchen. It's a Vietnamese place in Ithaca. It's super wonderful. Go there. But they are working on a, one of the buildings, and they have those concrete barriers up. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about murders. And it, it was just saying, please solve one murder. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. So then we get to the show. Tom Segura comes out. He does a few jokes. And he's like, so, uh, you know, I, I'm in Ithaca. I got to explore Ithaca today. He's like, but when I Googled Ithaca, apparently you guys have a bunch of unsolved murders. And we're like, well, what the fuck's going on in Ithaca that we don't know about? Really? I don't watch local news enough because what the hell? Well, and then, so my husband got a new car, which, oh my God, what a fucking pile of shit buying a car is. Um, the car is not a pile of shit, but the whole process is. Oh, it sucks. It sucks. But while we were test driving it, the, the dealer went with us. It sounds weird. The dealer went with us. Um, 
he, we were like, what are all of these unsolved murders? And apparently in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, just outside of Ithaca, there were a series of murders and wow. nobody knows who did it. Oh my gosh. So now I'm going to have to do a little bit more digging because yes. that could be one of our stories. Definitely. Which all and, about the local... And within a week, I've found out about, you know, Ithaca. Like, what's up, Ithaca? That's crazy. That's so... It's not cool, people. Don't take it the wrong way. Right, but, but. we live in such... <laughs> so, I, for just for context, anybody who may not be listening that's from this area, we live in an incredibly small town. Yes. Like, super small. Things like that don't really happen here. Well, and Ithaca's... We're Mayberry. And Ithaca is not what I would call a big place either. Like, it's a, it, there's, you know, yeah. large university there, but it's nothing like... Like, Cornell is there. It's a city. It's just it's a, not New York City. Well, even, like, from, I'm from Lancaster. Yeah. Which is, like, southeast Pennsylvania. I've been to Ithaca. Mm-hmm. It's way more rural than, like, yeah. where I'm from. Like, I'm, you know, it's not, it's still, like, there's a city, but it's still surrounded by nothing. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, it's yeah, still... Yeah. You have to like, drive through nothing to get there. Yeah, it's still kind of like, you know, in the middle of nowhere. It's got a cute little downtown and all that fun yeah. stuff, but like, it's definitely not what you would call it. Like, and there's no suburban sprawl yes, around like, it yeah. at all. So I, I still like when I think of Ithaca, it feels small. It's like State College. It is State College. It's like State College. Yeah. Like it's not really what you would consider city city. It's I just I don't I it's think a big sprawling city. area because of a university. Well, two yeah. universities, but yeah, it's college and, and Cornell. Cornell. But anyway. All right, so. that's my story. You're right. up, man. I'm up. Okay. Do it. So I wanted to do this case. This has been on my list since like day one, but I never do it because there's an element to this, and I had to explain it to my husband because he's like, well, that's depressing. <laughs> I'm like, there's an element of it that is a little depressing. And so we're going to start by just trigger warning, all this stuff. Um, this I'm not getting into any details. There's no details, but there are. This is the story of the Sodder children who oh. were killed in a fire. Right. Okay. So, it's not really about them being in the fire because. It, right. It's about There's the no conspiracy details. of what led to the fire and then the aftermath and how you know how that all unfolds. So, gotcha. I just kind of want to start there. Because, like, you know, I'm we're moms. You know, it's just... It, we do not want to hear about children getting hurt. No. <laughs> but this is a really interesting case for a number of reasons, and that's why it's always on my list, and I never do it, but I just... Yeah. I recently listened to another podcast about it. Like, I'd heard one before, and, you know... Yeah. I, when you start going down these, these like, rabbit holes. rabbit holes, you start, like, hearing the same things. Like, like, oh, I heard about this from a different person, and now I'm yeah. hearing about it from this person. And so, anyway podcasting is the new word of mouth and i basically didn't um do a title because i felt like anything i could come up with was inappropriate so so we're just gonna call it the solder children because that seemed the best thing to do (laughs) so on christmas eve 1945 george and jenny solder and their nine and nine of their 10 children one of them was away in the army yeah they had 10 kids first of all oh my god her poor vagina Honestly, I don't even know how you remember their names or what they do. Like, I can barely, I like, you know, whatever. Anyway. Well, I think about, uh, we, I have two. And, you know, I, I push them out between my legs 
because I honestly, C-sections terrify me. I don't ever hope to have one. I don't plan on having more kids, but I'm like, I could do one more, right? I could do one more. And then like my pelvic floor is like, bitch, no. I can't imagine having to go through that 10 goddamn times. I had a C-section because I had an an emergency C-section, which whatever, but um, yeah, and um, I still don't even want to think about having to do any of that again. Could you imagine having 10 C-sections? Well, I have a friend who, okay, we're so off topic here, but I have a friend who had like three and like where they like cut you, like it basically kills a lot of the nerve endings. So like it feels weird there. Like you can feel it, but not feel it. And she said after like the third one, it's really bad. So like, it's, you know, like you really can't, like it's an odd, like, like phantom sensation, you know, like it doesn't bother me that much, but like if I touch it i'm like oh yeah there's that weird thing that's a th- that thing so like doing that multiple times like uh-huh. god anyway no. okay okay birth, mom. all right christmas eve 1945 george and jenny nine of their ten children are at the house uh one of their sons was away he was in the army uh, around 1 a.m this is the part we know this is the set part a fire broke out george and jenny and four of their children escaped but the other five were never seen again and I'll get to the reason I phrase it that way is important. Um, this is what we know for sure. The cause of the fire and what may have led to it are in question. And even more incredible is what may have happened to the five missing children. So okay. background on the Sauter family. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sadu. He was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895. He immigrated to the United States in 1908. He was 13 years old, and this is kind of interesting. Him, his older brother brought him to Ellis Island and then literally turned around and went back to Italy what? and left his 13-year-old brother in America by himself. And George has n- never explained why. Like, and there's a lot of speculation. Like, Sardinia had a huge mafia population. Like, did he see something he wasn't supposed to? Right. Like why like your family decided to bring a 13 year old boy by himself himself. and like his brother went back to italy like which is crazy like anyway and not normal like i don't think that happened a lot i don't think like people brought you know came together and then one of them just went back right so anyway his name got changed then to george he went by george his name got changed like they often did to george Sauter. um so he Found work in Pennsylvania first, you know, working for the railroad, um, and he eventually moved to West Virginia, and he worked for, um, like, driving and hauling, and he eventually was very ambitious. He started his own um, trucking company, like, hauling and trucking company um, for, like, coal and things like that, so... um, while he was in West Virginia, he went into a store and met the owner's daughter, who was Jenny Cipriani, who had come to, from Italy when she was three. And they fell in love and got married. And then they had their ten children oh between God. 1923 and 1943. Oh my God. They ended up settling um, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, which is a normal West Virginia, you know, Appalachian town or... Appalachian town, whatever. Um, But it had a very active um, Italian immigrant community. So, like, they had their kind of like their people there. And they were a respected middle class family in in the town. You know, they were well known. I mean, you have 10 kids, people are going to know you. I'm sure they weren't the only ones, but you know. 
Um, but one of the things, and I, this is weird, especially with what's going on in the world right now. So one of the things that um, George often disagreed with his other Italian friends mm-hmm. about was Benito Mussolini. George was like adamantly opposed to Benito Mussolini, where some of them were still supporters right. of Mussolini because he had been in power for a while before World War II happened. Um, and this led to some arguments in the community, like people, you know, would get in fights with George about this particular subject. Um, and their oldest son, the one that's in the army, was serving in World War II. So, like, this happened in 1945, so, like, he was, he served in World War II, um, and Mussolini was, you know, executed, as we all know, um, but, so, like, people kind of let it go, but people, like, I guess held on to this thing about George not liking Mussolini, like, I don't know. Okay. So, just something to keep in mind when we talk about the conspiracy parts later. Okay. Um... All right, so this is the details about the night of the fire. And there's some interesting things that happen um, during that night that come, that make this, well, make this why I'm doing this case, basically. (laughs) Um, So, okay, first of all, you know, there's nine children. Um, One of the older daughters has been working downtown, you know, in a local, like, dime store. And she got extra little gifts for her youngest um, brothers and sisters, which is so sweet. Um, her three younger sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, who was eight, and Betty, who was five. And she bought them these special gifts, and they were all just really having a nice, like, Christmas Eve. And they asked if they could stay up past their bedtime with Marion, you know, with their new toys. And Mom, Jenny, said they could stay up late as long as the two boys did their chores before they went to bed, which were to put the cows in and feed the chickens. George and the older sons... Um, John and George Jr., who were 23 and 16, had spent the whole day working, and they were already in bed by 10 o'clock. Like, they were, yeah. you know, tired. So um, around 10 o'clock, Jenny goes upstairs with the baby. Well, she's two, but the baby um, who sleeps in her room. Yeah. So she takes her upstairs and goes to bed and leaves the other ones downstairs to play a little, you know. So she goes to sleep, and around 12.30 in the morning, um, the phone rings, and it wakes her up. And she goes to answer it because, you know, phone rings at 1230. Like, you know, you're going to answer it. And an unfamiliar voice asks for a name she doesn't know, like an unfamiliar name, like a wrong number. And she hears laughing and glasses clinking in the background. So she thinks somebody's at a party and they just dialed the wrong number. So she said, you have the wrong number and hung up. She goes back to bed, but when she does, she notices that all the downstairs lights are still on and the curtains are open, which is odd. And the front door was unlocked when she went down. So she saw that Marion fell asleep on the sofa. She was the one that brought the toys. Like, you know, all the other kids were in their rooms, but she fell asleep on the sofa. So um, she must have just... Fell asleep. Yeah. So she turns out the lights, closes the curtains, locks the door, and goes back to her bed. She's dozing off when she hears a sharp bang. And something hits the roof and then rolls, is how she describes it. So an hour later, she is awoken again, and this is when she wakes up to the smoke in her room. So she gets up, and she finds there's a room they used as George's office, and that's where the fire had started, um, around a telephone line and a fuse box. Um, So she wakes him up. 
they wake up all as many kids as they can now their house their bedroom is on the downstairs and this is important because the a lot of the kids bedrooms are upstairs um, the older sons wake up and come down so both parents and four of their children marion who was in the living room sylvia who was with the mom and dad john george jr who are the two older boys all come outside and they're yelling upstairs to the other kids who are upstairs in their rooms and the stairway is basically already on fire so like they can't get back upstairs so george does try to save them he breaks back into the house he like breaks a window slices his arm up um but he really couldn't see anything through the downstairs like he was downstairs and he couldn't see anything and like i said the stairways on fire there was no way from there to get up to the kids so he goes back outside and i stupidly did this in both sides <laughs> um he goes back outside and tries to figure out a way to get upstairs so he goes for a ladder that he keeps on the side of the house it's not there like for some reason it's strangely missing right that's where he keeps it then he has this idea that he'll take one of his trucks and as i said these are coal trucks like he's up yeah. they're big and he thinks if he can get a truck up by the window he could get on top and yeah. maybe get in neither one will start they worked earlier that day they drove them that day um so anyway he goes to get water out of a rain barrel which is frozen like every possible thing that he could do is not working and um you know he's covered in blood because he cut himself and it's just it's horrendous his daughter meanwhile while he's doing all of this somebody's like you know we got to find the now this is 1945 so you know daughter marion goes to the neighbor's house to call the fire company they, they get no response no because they don't have like a real fire company so they drive to a nearby tavern like another neighbor drove to like a nearby tavern to call again and they got no response so like completely insane they basically go into town and track down the fire chief who uses the phone chain to call the fire like his people to to show up basically um and the fire department was only two and a half miles away they didn't get there till eight in the morning this blaze started at what did i say one o'clock at night at this point the solder's home is a smoking pile of ash like there's nothing left the whole house is gone by the time the fire department even gets there now again i do understand that this was like like kind of how we have volunteer firemen like yeah. this isn't like nobody's job like there was a fire chief but it's all yeah. very but still, like, it's only two miles away. Like, something hours. should have been done. Yeah. Okay. So, they assume that their children are dead. But when they search the grounds that day, they don't find any bodies. And the chief... Sorry. <laughs> it was like, dun-dun-dun. <laughs> the chief says, well, they must have all burned up like, like they were cremated we'll get to this because that's that's a lot yeah that's a really intense fire now it did burn fast and the house went down quickly but um so anyway um george covers the base like the bottom with dirt because they want to kind of preserve the site as a memorial like they eventually plant flowers and stuff there 
um, the coroner's office issues death certificates just before the new year saying that they died of you know suffocation fire suffocation but um you know it's obviously that's so strange right that there was nothing that they found okay so strange events that led up to the fire that is why um the sodders begin to wonder if their children are still alive okay okay so a stranger appeared at their house a few months earlier um in the fall and he was looking for work you know he shows up looking for work which is normal and george takes him around the house and he looks at his fuse boxes like um, you know and he says this is going to cause a fire someday which george thought was a really strange thing to say because he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company who said everything was fine Mm -hmm. and they did determine that it was like the electrical fire was what caused the fire supposedly that's what they determined yeah (laughs) so um but George kind of dismissed this kid because he's just some kid who like looked right. at it and said, you know, yeah. I'd probably do the same thing. But it's odd looking back on it going, huh, that was weird, right? Well, I mean, it may be the electric company was lying. Your wiring is not okay. Right, right. So this is where they're like, they're sitting there now after this has happened and they're trying to like, and they're thinking back to all these things. So there's a bunch of them. Around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance. The and including life insurance for the kids which george was like no like they're kids they don't need life insurance yeah and this is another person who was really upset about his you know detest for mussolini supposedly this guy so um he was known to have said your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed you're going to be paid for your dirty remarks that you've been making about mussolini oh my god but like I mean, I think that's just a fucked up thing to say to anybody. It in is. General. And this is a guy trying to sell life insurance. And he was mad because George wouldn't take, like, he wouldn't yeah. buy it. Um, so we'll talk about him again later. But anyway, so these are things that happen that they're looking back on. Um, the Sodder children, well, the sons specifically recalled, the older sons, that just before um, Christmas, they noticed a man parked along Highway um, 21, which is, like, where they lived watching the younger kids as they came like came home from school one day but like they kind of like it's a big family and you know the kids came home and the brothers saw it it's not like they could have stopped it you know so like they didn't really think much of it um but it like you know i think it's one of those things you got to think like you got to take all this perspective because after something like this happens you're you're always going to try and find reason right not to say these things aren't odd but you know um so jenny could not understand how there was nothing left of her kids. So she literally started doing experiments at her house with burning, well, you know, her new house, burning animal bones, like, and seeing how, you know, like, much it would take for them to go away completely. Right. You know, and she was always left, no matter what she did, with charred, you know, bones. Um, She knew that remnants of various household appliances has been found in the burned-out basement that were still identifiable so like there was things found in the basement that you could still see so she just really had a hard time you know 
putting wrapping her mind around that idea. Right. So an employee at a crematorium informed her that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house was destroyed in 45 minutes. Wow. Like it was a quick, like it was yeah. a massively quick fire. So she's kind of set on the idea that there would be remains. Yeah. So, reason. yeah. Um, a telephone repairman told the Sodders that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. Their phone lines. Which is odd. Um, they realized that if the fire had been electrical, the result of faulty wiring, as officials reported, then the power would have been dead. So why were all the lights on downstairs when Jenny got up yeah. in the middle of the night? Um, oh, yes. Um Another person came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle, which is used to remove car engines. Um, now, this is a weird thing, and like, there's no real co- like corroboration yeah. about it, but that's odd, because why would his vehicles not start that night? Yeah. Um, and one day, while they were visiting the site, as I said, they kind of made it like a memorial, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard... And Jenny thought back to the thud on the roof, and it looked like like a napalm bomb, like a pineapple bomb is what it was called. It was the type used, you know, in World War II. So, um, again, like, what the hell was that about? And then come the reports of sightings. Now, let's be clear, I'm not, I have have no, I don't know where I stand on this, to be perfectly honest. I really don't. Um, because I know what investigations during the, like, it's different. I think now if this happened, we would have a clear answer immediately. Um, but anyway, so this all obviously gets a lot of press. And so a bunch of sightings come in, which sometimes these are legitimate. And sometimes these are people that just want attention. So it is, but I'm going to tell you about them. So a woman claimed to have seen the missing children, um, like in a passing car while the fire was in progress. Another woman um, operating like a diner at a tourist stop um, was like 50 miles west of where they were, said she saw the children in the morning after the fire. She said she served them breakfast and there was a car with Florida license plates at the, at the tourist court or whatever it was called. Like, who were they with? They clearly weren't paying for themselves. A woman at a Charleston hotel, same place, like, you know, saw the children's photos in the newspaper and said she'd seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men who spoke Italian. And she didn't remember the exact date, but they stayed in one large room and she tried to talk to the children. Like, they came late, stayed in a large room. She tried to talk to the children, you know, and just, like, be friendly. And the Italian men became hostile. And, like, she was, like, made them, like, not talk to her, basically. Um, So, in 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the FBI. And they actually got a reply from Hoover, which is crazy. Um, he said, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. But they did say that the FBI would assist if Fayetteville asked. Fayetteville will never asked, like ever. So at this point, the Sodders turned to a private investigator, C.C. Tinsley, which is a great name for a private investigator, which is my secret job that I want. Like ever since I was a kid. 
Do you remember those commercials where it would like you could like like get a degree not a degree but like a something in like weird vaguely yeah, yeah like yeah. weird jobs like paralegal and yeah it was like a one eight hundred thing that you yeah, yeah. yeah private yeah. investigator was always on there and I always wanted You're like that's me that's me, me. I want to do that Over here. I want to be Magnum PI come on Nicole PI exactly sorry all right um. <laughs> Um, so he's the one that discovered the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. Huh. Talk about a conflict of interest. Right. I sell insurance. And so he was clearly looking for a payout. Yeah. Like on those, you know, like, well, not clearly, but it's, but it's just weird. It's weird. Like yeah. he could have been looking for a payout. Um, there was also this weird story from, um, a minister about the fire chief he said that although morris claimed no remains were found he confided that he discovered a heart in the ashes and hid it in a dynamite dynamite box and buried it at the scene a heart a heart so tinsley persuaded morris to show the show him the spot together they dug up the box and took it straight to a funeral director who said it was a cow's liver it wasn't a heart at all and it was totally untouched by the fire which is odd. So it's super odd. Um, so there was rumors about that saying that the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all, that he buried the beef liver in the rubble in hopes that finding any remains would make the family stop investigating. Like, you know, I'm going to put this here. But, like, why would you do that? Why would you want them to stop? Right, exactly. So, okay. So the, over the next few years, um, tips and leads continue to come in. Um, George saw like a newspaper and this is where the family gets a little I don't, I don't know like they, they definitely become obsessed with finding their children because mm -hmm. they definitely think that they're still alive okay. so some of the stuff like you know it's a little whatever like he saw a ch like a photo of kids in New York City and he was convinced that one of them was his daughter Betty and like drove to find her and like the parents wouldn't let him see her because they right. were probably like why are you here stalking my kid yeah like i mean you know but they were i guess i'm i'm telling you this cuz it's like this is what they did they drove they any lead whatever it was they followed it up in august 1949 um they had another like search of the fire scene and they brought in um, a pathologist from DC and they did um, uncover some small objects like damaged coins, a partly, a partly bur uh, burned dictionary and several shards of vertebrae. However, when the bones were sent to the Smithsonian, this is what the report said. And I'm just going to read the report because it's easier that way. Yeah. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17. The top age would be 22 or 23. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy who was the oldest solder child that was missing. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that he was more developed than he, like, a normal 14-year-old. But it's really hard to take that and use anything with it. Um, the vertebrae also had no evidence that had been exposed to fire. So they thought that maybe, and this is kind of weird, but it's not unusual, I guess, that um, the dirt he brought in to fill in the basement, like, 
area that the bones might have been in that dirt, like, from whatever. I don't know, but, like, because they weren't, like, charred, but, like, they weren't from a fire. Like, you know. I like, just think it's super evidence. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, but this report it did make them, like, um, it did make them it gave them some standing to um, have a hearing about the case like in Charleston in the capital and the governor and the state police superintendent basically said their search was hopeless and declared the case closed but they kind of got their day in court like to present all of their but um, but undeterred so this is what they they did George and Jenny erected this billboard along route 16 and um, the also like you know flyers reward like anything to try and get and the billboard is pretty crazy um i have no idea which side i'm looking at anymore (laughs) (laughs) and i'll talk about it again at the end here but um the billboard was basically pictures of the kids and what happened and if you know anything about this you know And so everyone in this town had to see this billboard all the time. So even if these people were covering something up, like, it. it was still there. Yeah, I think I'm done with you. Okay. I printed on double-sided, double-sided and I can't keep track of it because I'm losing my mind. No, I'm just kidding. So um, the next thing, they did get a letter from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. And then another tip came from Texas, where a patron of a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. And someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's. And George went to every single one of these people to follow up to see if that was his kids. Like, they followed up every lead. Um, In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed to her only and it came from kentucky and on the inside was a photo of a man in his mid-20s and on the flip side there was like a weird little note and it said lewis Sauter, i love brother frankie and then i lil boys a90132 or 35 and they did think it looked like their son lewis who was nine at the time of the fire so like you know that would be correct um but you know it was like they like even facial features that they thought looked like him so they fired they hired a private detective and sent him to kentucky to like investigate this whole thing mm-hmm. that guy never came back he just like disappeared what yeah they never found out what happened to the private investigator so and they were worried that if they published the letter or the name of the town they might put their son in danger yeah so they didn't but they did amend the billboard to include the updated image so of this Uh, you know guy so they ended up um basically dying george died in 1968 with no answers and um jenny kind of went a little crazy and just kind of built kept like adding on to her house and just kind of staying away from the world she kind of um, she wore black her entire life after the kids died. Like she never came out of her morning clothes, and I can, with that. I can too. <laughs> but, I wear black. Um, and then she died in 1989. Oh wow! And so for anyone for nearly four decades, anyone driving down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia, could see the billboard bearing the grainy images of the five children. Um, 
all dark-haired and solemn eyes, their names and ages, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, stenciled beneath, along with speculation about what happened to them. Um, so, you know, it was kind of a big deal in this town. Um, they eventually, after 40 years, they did take the billboard down. Um, the children that remained and their grandchildren have continued to investigate anything that comes up. You know, they've never really just, like, let it die. Um, so here's some speculation. So they, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that it was the Sicilian Mafia that they were trying to extort money from George and that the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. But, you know, there's also speculation that the kidnap they were kidnapped by someone they knew who burst into the unlocked front door and told them about the fire and offered to take them someplace safe. Like, when they were downstairs with Marion, you know, like, the they never made it up to their... They never went up to their bedroom. But like, did the mom check when she woke up that one time? She didn't check their rooms. She just assumed they went up to bed. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. which I get. Like, her bedroom's on the downstairs. Marion's asleep. The lights are out. And she's like, well, I'm sure they just went to bed. Like, I told them to because, you know... Zoe could not get out of our house without us hearing us. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, well, and, like, nobody, because where our kids are, where their windows are, you would need a ladder to even reach those windows. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, like, yeah. <laughs> also, you would hear all of it, the dogs and all oh, the things. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, no, like, she just assumed, like, Marion was in charge, and she assumed that Marion had got them off to bed, and you know what I mean? Like... Um, I think that they best like that they went like I don't know and that's the other thing I don't know they don't say so like I can see how that like someone came in and said there's gonna be a fire come with us but like I just don't I don't don't either I don't either and I don't think Marion would still have been down there but it is odd that the door was unlocked the curtain was open and the lights were on like all those things like I think that probably stuck with the mother and like you know and she probably was horrified that she didn't go upstairs right. you know oh, to bet. double check but what is that's what, like, what did Marion say like well and I think when you I don't know and I think when you have a big family you rely on your older kids to help you with the other kids yeah. do you know what I mean like like she probably looks at Marion more like a sec like more like someone well, who's you know well, because Marion was the one that was with them like she stayed up with them right and so, played with them and then if she felt I know couch, I know what happened I don't know if she fell asleep. Like, maybe she fell asleep before they went up to bed. I don't know. And I don't know. And I none of my research dis- discovered that well, part. in my brain, my I know. Is, is if they were taken from downstairs and they never actually made it to their bedrooms, why didn't Marion hear that? See, I think they would take... If they were taken, I think they would have been taken from their bedrooms. I think if someone snuck in, saw Marion asleep, still before the fire, and they would have been upstairs maybe in their rooms like because it still could play out that way they could they could have snuck past her they would have had to know whose room is whose right well if it's someone they knew like someone in the community like it's a small community you know um and the older boys that were sleeping upstairs were the ones that worked all day who were exhausted so they're probably not going to wake up you know if you're quiet enough i don't know it's just it is possible it's unlikely but it is possible um the youngest and last surviving um, 
solder child is Sylvia, the two-year-old. She's 69. Um, she doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire, and she continues to investigate. Um, she has, a, like, vague memories of that night, but not much, because she was only two. Um, so, this is interesting. Stacy Horn did a segment on the case for NPR around its 60th anniversary in 2005, and she believes the children's death in the fire is the most plausible solution, which most people do. Um, the she did add to her like her story afterwards, though, um, that the fire continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed, and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly. So even if it had been the firefighters, even if it had been, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. Because, like I said, they're very inexperienced. Um, So what she's thinking is that, like, you know, the whole thing, it took, it was down in 45 minutes. It would take two hours for those bones to go away. Well, maybe it did continue to burn. Like, and the bones did continue to burn. And it wasn't investigated in a way that would, would have happened today. These are guys that, like, they had to call from a phone chain. Like, yeah. I'm guessing, and that's partly why I think they wanted the case closed, because, like, they know how inept they were, basically. Right. Um, so, like, I can see both sides of it. Like, I can see why people would think that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about it is that she did say that if someday it's learned that the children did not die in the fire, I wouldn't be shocked because of all the weirdness surrounding it. Yeah. You know, like, she's not completely, like, it's 100% they died in the fire. Yeah. Because there is so much weird thing, like, so much weird things. So much weird things. That's oh. what I said. Um, so here's, I'm going to, I have, a, like, a really good list that we can okay. talk about okay. really quick. So it's hard to really figure out what happened. But here's, like, some burning questions that we've kind of touched on. Who was the woman on the phone? And was she in some way connected to the fire? Yeah. The phone line becomes important at some point. Like, the phone line was where the fire started. Like, the fuse box phone line, and it was cut. Right. And so was this woman calling to see if the phone was still working? Yeah. Like, um, so that's kind of weird. And who moved the friggin' ladder? Yeah. Why wouldn't the truck start? Right. And I get it, like, you know, and these things could, like, like, you come outside and you're in this situation, like, who moved the ladder, who threw the, you know, whatever it was on the roof, mm-hmm. um, and it's weird, the bones, we talked about the bones that they found later, that's weird, you know, and the freaking, you know, cow's liver, like, why, why all this additional stuff? Yeah. Like, if you really think that they died in the fire, or you really think that it wasn't, you know, I think the thing that I'm most annoyed about is they don't talk about the fact that, like, I know they cl- like they declared it not to be an arson, mm-hmm. but it feels like an arson. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I kept looking for more about that, and I couldn't find anything because I was like, that's the first place to me to start. Yeah. Because then it becomes different but the solders and i get it they were more focused on finding their children because they thought that their children were alive and where where like where the house was is it still a memorial i don't know well because my thought is with all the technology we have now 
if there were I know. bones there, you know, if skeletons still remained. And, like, you could even bring up the soil and you could test I know. the soil for DNA if it's there. I agree. I agree. There's I feel like... so many things that could be done now. I don't know. And they might have built over top of it. And they do, like, okay, so, like, one of the things that... And that's what that NPR reporter was really getting at was that him putting dirt on it so soon while it was still kind of smoldering could have created like almost like an intensified box of burning and you know what I mean like like I I feel like I know why he did it but that probably was a mistake right in you know I don't think any other fire like now nobody would let you do that for Mm -hmm. good reason until it was fully investigated so all in all it goes back to a case of poor investigation yeah. you know, I don't and I don't know maybe even with a proper investigation they wouldn't have found the kids in there but and then why those children specifically well they were the youngest besides the the two year old which there was no way to get to because yeah. she slept in the room with the, the parents. parents but why not take the older girl who was asleep well, on the couch I don't know maybe and, well back to the room upstairs they could have used the ladder to get to the second floor no, I mean, why, if they were to take, if they were going to take this... No, I'm saying... If, she was isolated right, by herself. But she was, like, old. Like, they took kids that, if they did take them, they took kids that were young enough that they could control them. You're not going to take, like... And the one person said that it was four of the five. So, my, if I'm speculating, I would say the four youngest. Because if I go back, this is going to be fun the ages so here's what i think if that's what if that's the story i think all right martha was the oldest she was four or no maurice was the oldest he was 14 my guess is they took martha who was 12 lewis who was nine jenny who was eight and betty who was five because 14 boy probably not easy to control like, he's going to maybe fight back, or he's going to do something. Yeah. But the younger kids, I feel like you would have more ability to control. I don't know. Like, so I think it's interesting that the one witness only saw four of the five. You know? Yeah. like That's weird. So, and I mean, I think it makes sense if you were kidnapping kids. You're not going to kidnap 23-year-olds. You're not going to kidnap... I, I forget how old Marion was, but you're going to kidnap the younger children because you can sell them a story. We've seen it a thousand times and they eventually learn to believe it. You have to come with us to keep your family safe. If you don't come with us, the Sicilian mafia is going to kill your dad. You know, you have to come with us. They're Italian. They know what the mafia is. I'm sorry. They grew up in an immigrant, Italian immigrant community. I bet they know, you know, like you could tell them you have to come with us and be quiet and do this or do that or else your family will get hurt. I'm just waiting for, somebody to do a 23 and me and find out that they are related to the Sauter family right somehow, oh my gosh that's how they find out that would be crazy Wouldn't that be amazing it would be anyway so like i said it's a kind of depressing story but it's a really like i like i said i'm still stuck on the arson part like, yeah nothing about that fire looks like bad wiring or you know just bad wiring yeah like i just that bothers me that that wasn't a further 
investigation and i think when they went to the fbi and the fbi were like we'll help if they let us come in because you have to locals local police has to invite the fbi in i don't know you don't watch enough shows like i do to know that but (laughs) and they refused which is weird which is weird because you have nothing to hide and you think like why not let Let them them come in and have it yeah like make the family happy which is why that guy said that's what he was trying to do with the cow's liver which is exactly but still and how the fuck does a cow's liver look like a heart i don't know i don't either i don't do organs Ugh, stupid i don't do organs i don't do organs just my own the ones are in my body i don't i don't know i yeah i probably wouldn't know i would be like that looks like a thing gross (laughs) but anyway that's my story Okay, this is a really long episode. Oh, man. <laughs> just, like, looking at the time going by. I feel like in the space that we're using, it's just getting louder and louder and louder. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many things happening around us that I'm like, what the fuck? It's okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's still better than our houses because there's way more what the fuck at our houses. Oh, yeah. Two dogs, two kids. Yeah. So... Um, for anybody who doesn't know, we've switched to Podbean. Find us on Podbean and like us, even if you're not using the Podbean app. We would very much appreciate you um, just liking our podcast on it because every time you like it and listen, it helps us get sponsors. We're in the process of doing that. Yes. I just feel like this is fun. Like we're slowly growing and growing and growing yeah. and growing and growing. And I have started working on our first patreon episode yeah we're gonna start patreon soon um it's not expensive by the way so if you like episodes that go into a little bit more detail and are not condensed down like what we currently do that's what the patreon's gonna be do you want to tell them what the first episode's gonna be about sure it's my favorite it's my no it's not my favorite it's my first it's the one that got me going down the rabbit hole of true crime (laughs) um the black dahlia which obviously is not a little known case by any stretch Mm -hmm. but um i was like just enamored by this case when i first heard about it and like it's It's massively unsolved and there's so many theories about Mm -hmm. who did it um i read this crazy book about how the killings and the body were related to surrealism and i'm an art person and that like what made me go down the rabbit hole even further so i'm going back down the rabbit hole i checked the book out of the library um it's called severed the true story of the black dahlia by john gilmore and it turns out i would think i was the last person to check it out (laughs) of the library where i work so um i'm excited so that's our first story on patreon um we'll give more details about our patreon yes. soon so um yeah find us on podbean we're on iHeartRadio now as well and what else i don't i don't know i guess that's it just yeah. find us like us rate us um every time you do that share the podcast with people um, it helps our algorithm. It'll help us get sponsors. And if we get sponsors, that means eventually you'll get fun things too. Exactly. <laughs> like, so, um, that's it. Thanks, We're y'all. We're done. Have a great day. Your moms love you. Bye. Bye.